Okay, Matthew chapter number 5, verses 9 through 12. I, I don't know if you can tell, but like I said a moment ago, I'm, I'm a little jazzed up this morning. We might be out of here in 10 minutes. I'm talking so fast right now, so fired. Some of you are like, yeah, that'd be great. Let's see it happen. Uh, but anyway, um, thank you for, for that. Uh, let's see how fast they can get through this. Um, but anyway, uh, Matthew chapter 5, verses 9 through 12. Look what the Bible says, all right? The Bible says Jesus continuing his speaking here, his teaching here, this Sermon on the Mount. And he says, blessed are the peacemakers, uh, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons of God. They should be called the children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter, utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account or for my sake. Rejoice and be exceeding glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so persecuted the prophets which were before you. Let's pray together, may we? Father, we love you and we thank you for loving us. We thank you for sending your son to die on the cross for our sins. We thank you for your love, your mercy, your transforming grace and power in our lives. And Father, I pray that you'd help us in these next few minutes together to understand from your word exactly what you would have us to know. Lord, may we be challenged, may we be changed, may we be encouraged. May we leave here today more ready to serve you and do those things that you've called us to than we were when we came today. And we'll praise you and we'll thank you for what you will accomplish, not in our lives just today, but in the days and months and even the years ahead, praising you also for what you've already accomplished in our lives to this point. I thank you for everyone that is here. And I pray that you would just work in our hearts in a very special way. I pray for our pastor and for the group that is with him in Israel today. I pray that you just watch over them, protect them, uh, give them a great rest of the time there as they study your word uh, in that historic biblical place. Uh, May it change their perspective. May they uh, have a better understanding of you and your word from their time over there. And Father, I pray that you bring them back to us quickly and safely as well. And we'll just praise you and thank you for what you will do for we've asked these things in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. Now, the Beatitudes, as we've been going through over the last uh, several weeks, the Beatitudes specifically, these verses 2 through 12, as we'll see today, and the Sermon on the Mount in general, what Jesus is, is preaching as we go uh, through chapters 5, 6, and 7, the, the Beatitudes specifically and the Sermon on the Mount in general is not intended to be a list of things that we must do in order to gain favor with God, right? This isn't the point of what Jesus is trying to get across. This isn't isn't what he's teaching. And we know this because if he was, it would basically contradict the rest of the teachings of the New Testament, right? This isn't what is, is being taught. This isn't the message that's trying to be put across. He's not saying, do these things and you will finally get somewhere with God. That's not what he's saying at all, right? Uh, first of all, we need to understand the Beatitudes are instructive. All of these the pastor's been going through over the last several weeks and what we'll cover today, we learn that they're, they're instructive. They teach us something, all right? Meaning that they are intended to reveal to the true disciple, the true child of, child of God, the true follower of Jesus, 
what life should look like and begins to look like as we walk with God and as we grow in our faith and dependence upon him, right? It serves, Pastor mentioned this a couple of weeks ago, it serves as a, almost a, a sort of a litmus test, all right? Where am I in my walk with God? Am I, first of all, a child of God? Are these things present in my life at all? And if I am a child of God, how am I progressing in this process called sanctification, right? It's a litmus test, uh, and it serves it that way, as does most of the entire New Testament, right? If you've ever read through uh, the book of Romans, for example, I love the book of Romans, if you've not figured that out yet, uh, but as you look through the book of Romans, as you read all the way through, you learn very quickly that the first few chapters are basically divided this way. It's, it's a, the first few chapters, it's a declaration of our depravity, right? That when you read through the first few chapters of Romans, you learn that very quickly, just how broken and messed up and hopeless and helpless you and I are on our own outside of Christ in Adam, right? That's us. That's the first few chapters of the book of Romans. It's a, de a declaration of our depravity, right? It introduces us to really, really bad news, and then we look at the middle part of the book of Romans and we're introduced to our Redeemer. We're introduced to Jesus. We're introduced to justification and uh, that the fact that Jesus has come to rescue us and uh, what he's doing in our lives as a result of our salvation, this process called sanctification. We, we understand exactly uh, what's taking place there. That's the middle section. There's several chapters in the middle section of the book of Romans. And then you get to the last part of the book of Romans, chapter number 12 and on. And it basically gives, a, it gives us a description of what life is supposed to look like now that I understand more so these first two sections. When I understand just how broken I am on my own, how depraved I am on my own, and then I understand what Jesus is doing in my life through the process of justification and sanctification, I now begin to understand that life now looks different. Right? I behave different than I did before. I'm not the same person that I was before. The Bible says that I'm a new creature in Christ. Old things have passed away. All things have become new. And we begin to show forth that newness that we have as a result of the work of Christ in my life. Okay? So it's instructive. It, te it teaches us what life now begins to look like as a true, genuine follower of Jesus. And secondly... They are intended, the Beatitudes and the Sermon on the Mount in general, it's intended to bring the self-righteous individual to an end of themselves, right? Whether it's before salvation or after salvation, right? It's intended to bring the self-righteous person to an end of themselves. Because as you read through the Sermon on the Mount, you, you begin very quickly to realize, whoa, I'm, I'm not living up to this. I can't do these things on my own, and if you somehow think that you are, Jesus then begins to deal with the issues of the heart. And then you have to be honest with yourself and say, man, I might be looking good and doing good on the outside. The exterior might be uh, at least able to fool some people, even though I'm never fooling God. But when in reality, man, my heart, I know that deep within me there's some things that, that just aren't right, and that's what this exposes. And even if you've convinced yourself possibly that your heart on your own is where it should be, you get to one of the last things that Jesus says when he says, just be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. And it leaves every one of us falling flat on our face and thankful for the grace and mercy 
of God. So it's instructive. It shows us what life should begin to look like as a true, genuine follower of Christ. And at the same time, it's intended to bring the self-righteous individual to a complete end of themselves. You see, Jesus is not stringing together a list of things that we need to do in order to measure up, right? He's not providing us a spiritual ladder that uh, we're supposed to climb in order to gain the heights of God, right? That's not what Jesus is presenting here. He's not uh, presenting a list of things that we need to do in order to measure up, but rather proving the fact. He's proving the fact that we can't do these things or become these things on our own. So as we read through, there's a there's a growing sense of reality, right? As you read through the Beatitudes and as you read through the, the greater scope, the Sermon on the Mount, there's a, a uh, growing sense of reality that causes us to lament our depravity and yet calls us to live in a state of thankfulness concerning the doctrine of God's grace. The doctrine of grace says that I'm no longer that person that I used to be. Like I mentioned just a couple of moments ago, Old things are passed away. All things have become new. And as I grow in my walk with God, as I grow in faith and an understanding of who I am in Christ, the new natural begins to be realized not only in me, but through me as well. We need Jesus every moment of every day. And that's what this sermon taught by Jesus proves, right? Now, as we begin, I love the definition uh, that pastor gave for the term blessed, right? Or blessed, however you say it, right? However you say Lester or Leicester, whatever, uh, it doesn't matter, all right? However you say it, I love the word or the definition that pastor gave to this word. He put it this way, uh, blessed is, can be seen as loving favor, okay, that produces true genuine happiness and joy in the life of a believer. I love that definition. It's true. This is what, this is what it means to be blessed of God, right? The, the biblical definition of blessed is so contrary to the way the world would define being blessed, okay? I'll read it to you again. He says, loving favor that produces true, genuine happiness and joy in the life of a believer. In other words, this loving favor, this grace that God has exhibited toward us, moves us along and causes us to cooperate with God as he works to conform us to the image of Christ. That's what sanctification is, right? God putting us through things and circumstances and situations to conform me and you, true children of God, followers of Christ, to conform us to the image of Jesus. Now, as we conclude this series on the Beatitudes... We begin in verse number nine, all right? And by the way, uh, I'm a little bit nervous to be finishing uh, up this series that Pastor has done such an amazing job with, okay? Uh, the last thing that I want to do this morning is to mess it up. Uh, and some of you are thinking right now, yeah, he's done a great job. Don't mess this up, all right? You've got one message to get through. Don't mess it up, all right? So that's, that's the prayer. That's the goal. That's the intention is to conclude uh, this series of messages uh, in a way that would please and honor and glorify God, right? Notice what he says in verse number nine, right? He says, blessed are the peacemakers. The term peace that Jesus uses here is a term that would be, you know, these individuals would have been somewhat familiar with it. 
It's used several times, not just in the uh, New Testament, but in the Old Testament as well. But the word that he uses here, this word peacemakers, uh, this, is some, this is one word that's used one time in the course of, of Scripture, right? This, is, this would have been a thought that was somewhat unique to these people that he was teaching, which was, you know, pretty evident of the rest of the teachings of Jesus. It was so counterintuitive. It was so radical. It was something where people left thinking to themselves, wow, I never, I never heard that before. I never realized things that way, right? So this one word that's used one way in Scripture, uh, about a year or so ago, we defined this as what? A, a hopox legomenon, all right? There's that word again, all right? I love these, and this is, this is the only time that Jesus is using this word is in this passage uh, and he's using it to, to stress a point. He says that the blessed or the blessed are the peacemakers. All right? Now understand, a peacemaker is one who does not simply try to bring appeasement to a situation. And what I mean is a peacemaker is not an individual who's simply trying to dial down the heat in some circumstance or situation. Okay? A peacemaker is someone rather who works to bring hostilities to an end. Now, before I go any further, I need to make a little bit of a disclaimer here concerning peace and seeking it, all right? Uh, the Apostle Paul tells us in Romans, remember what the Bible says in Romans, um, to live peaceably with all men, right? That's what life naturally begins to look like, as we've already, as we've already mentioned. But it's important for us to remember the Apostle Paul, in speaking about being an individual who lives peaceably with all men, he says, if at all possible, and he does not say, at any cost. So what does this mean? This tells us that we must never compromise the scriptures in order to arrive at peace with any individual. We must never compromise the scriptures to arrive at peace with any group or, or any administration. So may God help us to be men and women of God who are able to look boldly in the face of adversity and opposition and repeat the words of the great reformer Martin Luther when he said, my heart is held captive to the word of God. Here I stand, I can do no other. So help me God. See, Jesus states that the peacemakers are blessed, for they shall be called the sons of God. They shall be called the children of God, all right? Notice this. Jesus is not saying that we must be peacemakers in order to become the children of God, all right? Understand, he's not saying you must be a peacemaker if you want to be a child of God. But what he is saying is that rather the children of God will be known by the fact that we are lovers of peace and seek it at every given opportunity. Children of God are peacemakers because God has made peace with us. That's the driving force, right? You and I, children of God, are peacemakers because God has made peace with us. You see, the Bible states that without Christ, right, you and I in our lost state, right, uh, we, were, we were the enemies of God, right? The Bible says that we were, uh, we had committed treason against the God of this universe. We are at war with the king of all creation, a battle that we could not win. Right? It needs to be understood that we are the ones who made war against God. We are the ones in our sinfulness and depravity who are to blame for the conflict against God. Right? Paul then writes in 
2 Corinthians chapter 5 and also Colossians chapter number 1. He gives us, he gives us good news. He gives us really great news, understanding this fact that you and I were at war with God. Okay? We're the ones who started it. Paul tells us that in the, first, in the first few chapters of Romans. You and I told God, we want nothing to do with you. We committed treason against the God of this universe, this king of all creation. We committed treason and put our, we waged war against him. But the good news that the Apostle Paul gives in, Corinthians, in 2 Corinthians 5 and also Colossians 1, he says that God has made peace with us. God, the one that we started the war against, he is the one who made peace with us through the cross, through the shedding of the blood of his own son. So now, you and I, by grace, through faith, understanding this, can rest our heads on our pillows at night and sleep well, sleep soundly, knowing that God is no longer mad at me because of who Christ is and what Christ has done on my behalf. Now, as a result of God's work, by grace through faith, understand this, the hostilities have ended and the war against God is over. We have been translated from the kingdom of darkness into his kingdom of light. God has made peace with us. I love the way the Apostle Paul puts that when he talks about being translated from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. It's as if God literally came over and saw me and you at enmity with him in this kingdom of darkness, working to advance the kingdom of darkness in our lost state. And he picked us up and he took, he translated us and put us into his kingdom of light by grace through faith. The war is over, right? I am no longer at enmity with God. We have been translated from the kingdom of darkness into his kingdom of light because he is the one who has made peace with us. So we understand from what we've seen already and from the Old Testament and different passages in the New Testament, we learn that God loves peace. God actively pursues peace. And so therefore, what God loves his children love. Those who are true, genuine believers, followers of Christ, what God loves, we love. What God pursues, we pursue. Understand, he's made a sacrifice for us to be reconciled unto him, and we must be willing and ready, looking forward to the opportunity to do the same toward others. Right? This is what Jesus is teaching it's the point that he's trying to get across. And, you know, we're sitting here right now thinking this is just so, this is so counterintuitive. This is not how we are wired as fallen human beings with sin natures. This is, this is not how we normally, naturally function, okay? Now, if we were all honest with ourselves, we would have to admit that naturally, deep down, this idea of making peace with others who are at war against me is totally unnatural. Is it not? I mean, how many of you right now are thinking, oh yes, this is, this is exactly what I want to do. You know, I, I love it when people revile me and hurt me and say all manner of evil against me falsely. I, I love that. Bring it on, okay? There's not one person in the room left to themselves that thinks that way, okay? So understand this. The idea of making peace with others who are at war against me is totally unnatural. My broken, sinful nature wants what? 
When someone does you wrong, when someone hurts you or your family or a close friend or whatever the case might be, we want a word that starts with an R and that's revenge, right? This is how we're naturally wired. You hurt me, I'm going to hurt you. Oftentimes, I'm going to try to hurt you even more. That's, that's the natural human being. That's how we're all hardwired in Adam, okay? So my broken, sinful nature wants revenge when you do me wrong. And this is exactly the point that Jesus is trying to make, right? We, he brings us all to the fact of realization that I cannot be a peacemaker on my own. I need his grace, I need the gospel to change and transform me, not only for salvation, but every day as we walk through this process of sanctification as well. Until then, until the moment that our desires are changed completely and forever, and we realize the new normal, we must be obedient to God and seek peace as he has made peace with us. Right Now, Every Christian in this room, every Christian under the sound of my voice, right, and beyond, has been called of God to be a peacemaker, right? Everybody in the room, you've been called of God to be a peacemaker, right? And this goes along with what Jesus was saying in, in the verses following, when he says that you are salt. He says that you are light. If you are a true child of God, a follower of Christ, you are salt. You are light. He's not saying, I want you to become these things, he says that this is who you are, and the same tone is being used with regard to a peacemaker. This is who you are. The question is, is it being realized in my life? Am I yielding myself to him and allowing peace to actually be made? Every Christian in this room has been called to be a peacemaker. However, I would not be a good pastor if I did not tell you that making peace can often involve great pain. Some of you are thinking, yeah, I know that. Right? Uh, tell me something profound here, okay? Oftentimes, making, pay, making peace can involve great pain. When we find ourselves involved in some struggle or turmoil with another person, we will either experience the pain of apologizing and seeking reconciliation, which, by the way, is a blow to our pride. I don't, I don't like to be the person who has to admit that I'm at fault for something. But if I'm at peace, I'm willing to die to myself. I'm, I'm willing to resist my sinful pride. And by the way, the Bible says that only by pride comes contention. So if we're warring with another individual, it's because there's pride in my life and or theirs. And oftentimes I know how we are. Right? I, I hear my kids do this all of the time when they fight. And, and if there's contention in the house for some situation... I always mention to them, I try to be the, the good parent and say, only by pride comes contention. And each child says, yes, it's them who's full of pride, never taking responsibility for themselves, okay? Uh, but oftentimes when there's contention, there's pride involved in every, in every party. It's a blow to our pride when we have to apologize, realize that there's something that we could have done to maintain peace in this situation to seek reconciliation or the pain of needing to approach a person who has done us or others harm. We may also find ourselves working to bring peace between other people and the pain involved. Oftentimes we'll simply be listening to the things that are going on and getting rid of preconceived notions and showing sympathy to those individuals that are involved. So whatever the case, we pray 
and we take whatever practical initiatives we can to make peace possible at every opportunity. Asking for God's wisdom, following his direction, and humbly taking part in the work of reconciliation because God has reconciled us to him. Right? Now, it's interesting what Jesus says next in this particular passage of Scripture. Right? Notice what he says uh, in verse 10. It's almost, it's almost as if he's giving us a warning because he knows what's going to happen when we seek peace and live according to his will. Right? Surprise, Jesus knows what's going to happen. Right? Uh, he's warning us because he knows. He's teaching us these things to prepare us for what we need to know as we live this way. Verse number 10 says, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. Jesus is telling his true disciples, those genuine followers of Christ, that you can expect to be persecuted or treated with some sort of disdain as you live a life that is well-pleasing to God. Expect it. It's going to happen. You see, this, this passage of Scripture doesn't say, if you endure persecution. It says, when Right? Expect for it to happen. And Jesus is giving us a warning as he progresses in verse number 10. Now, at this point, however, uh, I think it's important to understand a main thought here. Another, another disclaimer, if you will. Okay? In verse 10 and 11, he says that we are blessed when we are troubled. He says that we're blessed when we're distressed or persecuted for righteousness' sake or for the cause of Christ. Right? Understand this. He is not referring to trouble that we bring on ourselves as a result of our own foolishness. He's not saying this at all. Okay? Uh, if you mouth off to your boss and get fired, you're not being persecuted. Okay? If you disobey your parents and you get grounded, you're not being persecuted. Okay? Uh, when I was in California, I was a youth pastor at that for about four years, and I had kids in my youth group that would literally say this to me. They would uh, say that, hey, I can't go to that football game on, on Friday night because my parents are persecuting me. And I'd say, what, what is going on in this house? And I said, well, why can't you? What, what's, what's happening here? And they said, well, you know, I didn't get my project done in school or whatever. And so now they're persecuting me. Dead serious. And I'd say, look, man, you're not being persecuted you just need to get your act together, okay? And this is what, this is what Jesus is trying to get across. And uh, Peter mentions this also in 1 Peter chapter number 2. If you want this for reference later, you can look it up. 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 19 and 20 says, and I'm paraphrasing here, that if we suffer for the wrong that we have done, okay, this is common in life. It's, it's to be expected. Just deal with it, okay? If you're, if you're suffering for your own foolishness, come on, man, all right? This is, this is the point that's being given. But if we suffer for living righteously, if we suffer for the sake of Christ and the advancement of his kingdom, the Bible says that this is well-pleasing to God. Now, the persecution that Jesus speaks of is mentioned in verse number 11, and it's all-encompassing, all right? In verse number 11, he says, The world will revile you. The world is going to undermine you. The world is going to harm you. It's going to hurt you. It's going to say all manner of evil things against you falsely. Right? And he says when this happens, he says that we are to rejoice. He says that we're to rejoice and be exceeding glad. 
So when we are persecuted and suffer for righteousness' sake, we are not to retaliate like the pagan. We are not to sulk like some child. We are not called to simply grin and bear it like some stoic or even pretend that we enjoy the pain like some sort of masochist. But we are to rejoice and be exceeding glad, full of joy in the midst of hardships. How many of you right now are thinking, okay, hold on, all right? Hang on just a second. I was fine with being meek, okay? I was cool with showing mercy and, and hungering for righteousness and making peace and all of that stuff. But at this point, it seems like Jesus is kind of going too far, okay? Are you saying that I am supposed to rejoice and be exceeding glad as I face ridicule? As I face opposition? As I face strife and even certain death? <laughs> is that what you're saying, right? I want you to notice the words that Jesus uses. Okay, notice them again. He says, rejoice and be exceeding glad. All right, this carries with it the idea of, of literally jumping for joy, being overwhelmed with happiness and glee. Right? Oftentimes, the way that we react when our teams win, right? Um, it's been several years for me, but this is exactly the way that I reacted the last time the Denver Broncos won the Super Bowl. I mean, I was, I was jumping. I was exceeding joyful and all of that. I can't remember that feeling. It's been so long, all right? Uh, but it's the, feeling, the same type of feeling I'm going to have in just a couple of months when the Avalanche win the Stanley Cup, okay? This is, this is what he's talking about. Some of you are like, what's the Stanley Cup? What is this guy? I digress, all right? Back to the, back to the scriptures, okay? Uh, this is the response, all right, that we're to have as we go through these things for the sake of Christ. Now, in order for us to behave this way, in order for us to be naturally moved to such a response, we have to know something first. This is why, this is why doctrine is so important. All right? This is why it is so important to read the Bible every day because it gives me insight to what God is actually doing in the world and also in my life. You see, Paul tells us that God has a purpose and a plan for everything that comes my way. He is sovereign. He is in complete control of every detail of my life. So we rejoice because Jesus tells us in his very next breath that your reward is great in heaven. Just a side note with regard to this idea of persecution. Persecution provides proof and assurance of the genuineness of one's faith. See, Jesus said that the servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, Jesus says, if they persecuted me, if they hated me, then you can expect them to do the same to you. See, Jesus offers further encouragement by stating that the world, those opposed to God's kingdom, and, and also persecuted the prophets which, we, which were before them. It's as if he's saying that if you are being persecuted, or if you will be persecuted for the sake of Christ, if you're being treated this way, it's almost as if he's saying you're part of a noble group of those who have gone on before you. And Christ is making it clear, I am the head of that group. They persecuted me. Expect them to do the very same for you, my true followers. And he says, and I have gone to prepare a place for them. So take heart, Christian. 
follower of Christ, stand and be strong because heaven is yours to gain. Understand there is a kingdom that is coming and Jesus is that king. The Bible says, Jesus' teaching says, as I persevere under the persecution and strain for righteousness, as I am faithful to him in the face of adversity and strife, he will reward me with the opportunity to rule and reign with him and his, in his kingdom and bask in the wonder of his marvelous glory for all of eternity. See, Romans 8 tells us that the creature is yearning. Do you remember this passage when the Apostle Paul talks about the suffering that we go through, he says, he tells us in Romans chapter number eight that the creature is yearning. This has the idea that the creature, you and I, are li he's literally standing on his tiptoes. He's stretching forth his neck, trying to see what's, what's coming. He's trying to find out what's on the horizon. He's in such pain and agony. He's yearning. He's stretching forth to see what is coming? He's eagerly waiting for the revealing of the sons of God and the suffering that we presently endure pales in comparison to the glory that will be revealed to us one day. We rejoice because we know, we know what's coming. We are not simply waiting for that day to come. Understand this. We're not saying, I'll rejoice when that day comes. We rejoice now because we actually know that that day is a reality and it's coming. This reminds me of uh, the first time we found out, Melissa and I found out that we were going to have a child. The first time we found out that Callie was going to be born, right? This is the idea that he's talking about. Even though we found, after we found out that Melissa was pregnant and Callie was, was going to be born, it was still several months away and nine months in the course, uh, in, the, in the life of a, uh, of a new family can oftentimes seem like an eternity, right? We didn't say, we'll rejoice when the day that she finally gets here. We rejoiced now because we knew what was actually going to come. And this is what Jesus is trying to get, to get across. This is what Paul in Romans 8 is trying to get across as well. We are exceeding glad because persecution actually proves the teachings of Jesus and the word of God to be, true, to be true. So in light of this, we can wholeheartedly claim the words of the Apostle Paul when he said to live is Christ and to die is gain. I bear in my body the marks of the Lord Jesus from henceforth. Let no man trouble me. Threaten me with heaven and I will rejoice and be exceeding glad. So what do we do with this? Right? What now? As we conclude this series of messages, as we conclude this passage and this sermon for today, now what? What do we do with us? All, after everything that we've already seen for the, for the last several weeks, what do we do? First of all, we thank God for the peace that he has made with us. And we ask for his help in making peace with others. I can't do this on my own. There's a humble acknowledgement that I need Jesus if peace is going to happen in this situation. And if peace is going to happen in this situation, it's because God has reminded me of the peace that he has made with me through the death of his cross, through the death of his son on the cross. So we thank God for the peace that he's made with us and we ask for his help in making peace with others. 
We rest in his sovereignty and trust him to bring all things to an intended end. Aren't you glad that God is in control? Aren't you glad that he is sovereign? Aren't you glad that there is nothing that will ever enter your life that he hasn't allowed to come into your life and has a very specific plan and purpose for? That will help you rest at night. That will help you sleep well when you have a good understanding of his sovereignty. We rest in his sovereignty and we trust him to bring all things to his intended end. We rejoice because we know what's coming. We call out to God and ask for his help and his continued transforming grace to actually live out these beatitudes. As I said at the beginning, he's not giving a list of things to do in order to get somewhere with God. We need his help. We need his grace. We need his transforming power in our lives every moment of every day. And when that happens, these things become the new normal, the new natural. We exemplify Christ this way, and we need Jesus every moment of every day. So we allow that. We allow this to bring us to the reality of the fact that I'm hopeless to do this on my own. Thank God for Jesus. Thank God for his grace. And thank God for his transforming power.